You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 119. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. So you've reached another Local Maximum. Good to be with you this week. All of these probability and Bayesian-related episodes are generating so much interest. So I've got a really great guest for you today. We aren't going to sidestep the question of Bayesians versus frequentists. We are going to deal with it in a more direct way, in a more head-on way. We're going to have a discussion about it, how, you know, um, most of academia and even some of industry is still very frequentist. Why is that? So I'm really excited uh, to, and how do we change it as well? So I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this today. Today's sponsor is Brilliant, the creators of fun and interactive courses to help you learn about math and science. Check them out through the link for today's episode to help out with the show as well. That's localmaxradio.com slash 119. Brilliant. Now, today's guest wants what we call Bayesian inference, to cease being the unwanted and ignored child of a well-rounded general education in probability theory and statistics today. He is a professor of science and technology at Bryant University and also the author of Statistical Inference for Everyone. Brian Blaise, welcome to the show. You've reached the local maximum. Welcome. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. I thank you so much for reaching out to me because, uh, you know, you said I see you've done so much work on trying to get Bayesian inference into the popular consciousness into academia, which where it's so badly needed. And so I'm, I'm really glad to uh, have you on the show today to talk a little bit about your experience. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, I actually, I was looking at this last night and I was looking, and this is, this might surprise you. I was looking at my top 10 most popular shows. You know, I don't, podcasters do this. They're, they're obsessed with download numbers. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I ranked my shows, which is now a hundred and 18 or 117 shows as of now. This is going to be show 119, but 119 isn't out yet. And the top 10 sh- of the top 10 shows, three of them have Bayesian in the title. And I think I only have five with Bayesian in the title or Bayes <laughs> in the title. So um, that surprises me. That tells me something. I don't know what that tells me. There could be, I mean, I am a Bayesian, so there could be multiple explanations for that. But, uh, <laughs> and it's a small data set, but uh, it, at least uh, Bayesian doesn't turn people off. I'd, I'd say that. Right. And, I, and, and maybe, uh, maybe your listeners, at least for me, I can, so, so I can speak for me. That was certainly one of the things that caught my eye because I was just looking around on different podcasts. I just stumbled upon your podcast probably, what, uh, maybe about two weeks ago, maybe three, like right, right around the time that we uh, went into quarantine. Right. Um, and um, so I was kind of looking at things and I saw you had a Bayesian come up. And then there were a few of them like that. And, and so I started listening. And one of the things that struck me was, in, in a sense, how practical you are, like in terms of your explanation, you're, you're not coming at, from like a high math sort of uh, uh, perspective. It's very you kind of grounded in applications. And I thought, one, that I think that's somewhat rare, but, it's, but it's, it makes for a very nice kind of discussion or a very nice presentation of the material. Yeah, yeah, I really like doing that. It's it's funny because I'm the sort of person that really jumps off the deep end with the math. Like I could do that, but I I gained some self awareness about it at some point, and I was like, okay, I could keep doing that, but let's kind of bring it back to a a, a practical thing. 
And by the way, where are you that you went into quarantine three weeks ago? I've been here for <laughs> eight weeks more. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think I'm probably just losing to, you know count of the, of <laughs> the, of the weeks, on, honestly. So yeah. uh, actually, I think um, I probably went into quarantine somewhere around mid-March because it was yeah, yeah. pretty much the end of our spring break. And that was, you know, so I'm, I'm in Rhode Island. Um, gotcha. And, Every day seems the same these days. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let, let's get into it. So Bayesian inference, big topic here in the local maximum. I know you have a lot to say about it, some of it which might be new to my listeners, but I want to start uh, by pointing out that your book is called Statistical Inference for Everybody or for Everyone mm. and not Bayesian Inference for Everyone. Uh, I use the term statistical inference a lot, but I haven't uh, explicitly defined it. So before we get into Bayesian versus frequentist, why don't you tell us uh, what do you see as the goals of statistical inference? When someone's saying they want to do statistical inference, what are they trying to do? Well, I, I think mostly it's trying to make the uh, uh, use the best information to make decisions. This may include models, but it, but a lot of it has to do with quantifying effects and their uncertainties, and that's a that's a major you know point. Um, and I also find kind of more generally that, that the idea of statistical inference is to properly structure one's thinking. So I, so I think of it almost philosophically in that, in, in that way, um, to be able to recognize and avoid common cognitive biases, to make sure that you're thinking properly and using the evidence in a non-biased way, uh, to be able to um, you update your beliefs based on new information um, and that sort of thing. So I think of it both in terms of the kind of applications of it, but also somewhat more generally in terms of how do you, how should you properly think about things? Cool. So uh, you uh, talk about the disconnect between the way statistics is taught and the way it's used successfully in practice. And it sounds like Bayes' rule is a big part of the picture here. What do you think that disconnect is and where does it come from? Well, it's, it's actually really interesting. It, um, so my background is in physics and statistics is actually not a part of standard physics training, at least not in the kind of standard application in terms of p-values and hypothesis testing and so on. You do a lot of probability theory, you do statistical mechanics and, and things you're talking about how molecules move around, but you don't, you don't do statistical tests, for example, um, it, and there's not like a class that you would, that you would take. Um, and that disconnect actually goes back a couple hundred years. Um, and I learned a lot of this from E.T. James, who wrote uh, a, a lot of articles on, on this back in the 70s and uh, the early 80s. And, yeah, maybe yeah. we want to go into a little more detail there, because yeah. I talk a lot about uh, Bayesian, the history of, of Bayesian okay. thought. And I talk about Bayes himself, Laplace, which, which you should talk about, too. I talk about... Uh, well, and then, then more recent stuff, but I actually haven't gotten into Jane's too much. Yeah, well, Jane's kind of, in a sense, led the revival back from, you know, for, so like the, the, the rough history is that we have um, Bayes' rule that's named after Reverend Bayes, who had written it down, but had never published it. It actually published after he died. Right. And Laplace in the late 1700s, early 1800s, independently derived the same rule. And he, he um, derived a lot of things. And he was kind of the Newton of France uh, yeah. at the time. And, but he was the one who actually applied probability theory across a wide range of applications from um, sociology to physics to, um, to 
you know, all over, kind of all over science geology. Um, and, and so he was the one who kind of put that uh, kind of firm theoretical uh, foundation. It was after he died that there was kind of a backlash against a few of the ideas that were the foundation of probability theory. Much of it was the, this idea that probability is a measure of your subjective um, assessment of a, of, of a proposition. So something right. like which yeah. is sort of the way I think about it. Right, right, exactly. And that's the, that would be the, the, the kind of the Bayesian way to think about it. And, and in fact, I, you know, the, the word Bayesian has become so toxic. I generally just refer to probability theory because it's really hard for someone to argue against probability theory. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but there, there was this backlash mostly from mathematicians who didn't like that kind of subjective aspect of it. So they tried to make it more um, palatable as a, as a theory. They didn't, and so they, they formed a, essentially a, an objective version of this, which defined probability in terms of uh, long run relative frequencies where you could kind of count things. And when you're counting things, then there isn't this kind of subjective prior. Um, and that procedure was really pushed a lot by um, by Fisher, who was a geneticist. And he came up with many of the kind of statistical tests and the frameworks of frequentist frameworks that were that we've come to, uh, um, you know, hear about in, in, in most textbooks. All the while, kind of the probability theory kind of Bayes rule formulation was kind of percolating in the background. Um, there were um, there were some physicists who were still using it. It was used by Turing in World War II to help crack the Enigma code. Uh, there was a book a, a while back called The Theory That Would Not Die. Uh, yeah. well. I, I don't know if you've gone back, but we actually we talk about that book in episode zero of this podcast. Oh, I might not have missed I might not have caught yeah. that one. But yeah, that's an excellent book. Um, and that really traces the history nicely uh, for that. And E.T. James goes through a lot of it as well um, and, and is a little bit more technical. Um, and, and one of the things that was, you know, kind of shown, I'd say probably from the sixties through the, the seventies or eighties is that you could derive a lot of the kind of frequentist tests from a Bayesian perspective, most of the time, essentially assuming no information. So essentially uninformative priors. So when you didn't know anything else, you could pretty much count stuff. And, right. and that's what you would get. And that's why Fisher would use a lot because he was a geneticist. He was, he was talking about real populations. He was really, he was talking about counting things. And so his, his methods work really well in, in that context, but does, they, they don't tend to work really well if you have kind of prior knowledge or if you have um, kind of a theoretical framework that you're basing it off of, which is why a lot of the kind of the Bayesian revival has been led by astronomers because they're in the case where they have kind of theoretical um, expectations, kind of prior information, and they're often dealing with a small amount of data. So like they might, you know, you're, you're analyzing, say, neutrinos from a supernova, you might end up with 12 data points. Uh, you might be observing the night sky across, you want to do it for a month, and weather keeps you from doing that, you only get a week. Uh, and, and so you need to be able to use all the information that you can. But you also often have you know, some kind of physical um, models that could help help you know, guide your thinking so you've got to kind of squeeze as much information mm. as you can out of right. uh, the, the small right. amount of information that you have right 
Yeah, and not throw away anything that you do have. I mean, if you know the structure, the statistical structure, say, of the background radiation, you can use that knowledge to help subtract it out to help get a, a good signal. So, and um, there was a, a paper by Tom Lurito that I, that I found was really nice and clear, uh, essentially highlighting that advantage of Bayesian methods. Um, it was called something like uh, Laplace to supernova, uh, and it was, and it, goes through some of the history a little bit also, but, and, and derives, you know, the Bayes theorem on a foundation. Um, but it also applies it to uh, problems in astronomy. So, yes, yeah, so this is really interesting. And so you, you, you mentioned before this, this disconnect, which I want to dive into a little bit. Um, so this sounds great. We can make more inferences from less data. This seems like a superset of uh, frequentist objective methods. Why this disconnect? Right. Well, I mean, in some sense, why is a disconnect continuing? Right. You know, I guess that's the, the okay. question. I mean, once it, because okay. because because once it's once it's made clear that you have multiple methods and they may, uh, uh, and you can apply them, say, to the same problems, the question is why why would you always choose the the, the best one? Um, I think there's still. I would say there's kind of four reasons that I would think that why there was a, this kind of a disconnect. There's still this aversion to the kind of subjective priors, and this, and, and I think this is um, uh, overblown for the most part. But but I'll, we can get back to, to why why I think that that one is not a problem. Problem um, the, that conditional probabilities are inherently unintuitive, um, and, and there I think there you know people might be worried about teaching this and, and the hurdle that you have to get students over in order to have conditional probabilities be intuitive. Um, there is a definite perception that the Bayesian approaches require some kind of advanced mathematics. Um, that I've heard from multiple people. Um, and, and, but I think, you know, probably the, the final reason is what I call inertia. And the inertia can be, you know, as simple as we've always done it this way, you know, why change? But the other thing is, is that sometimes you are training students, so I'm speaking in an academia point of view, training students for certain um, kind of official jobs. This could be like med school or actuarial school, and they have certain tests and expectations. So you might say, you might ask a, a, a statistician who's taking statistics to an actuary that, you know, why do you teach the, the frequentist method as opposed to Bayesian? And they'll say, well, that's what they're going to be tested on. Um, and so we have to, I mean, we, we can't really just change the vocabulary immediately. But one of the things I got out of the Theory That Would Not Die mm -hmm. book is that the one of the first areas in the private sector to deploy, employ uh, Bayesian methods was actuaries. Yeah, yes, it is it's still there, but it, it, it does seem to be a minority still. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, and, right. So they, they still talk about, right. you know, uh, hypothesis testing right. and things like that. Yeah, so they do. And out. yes. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with that, that they, they don't often have good um, kind of models of what's going on. And so you're relying primarily on sampling. Right, right. And when you do that, then the frequentist methods work. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I never deny that they work, but let's right, we yeah. can talk about that in a little bit. Sure. Uh, but I want to I want to dig into some of the things that you said. Uh, first of all, like, are conditional probabilities really unintuitive? <laughs> I, I feel like, okay, like, uh, you know, given that, um, well, I, I I'm I'm having trouble thinking of an example off the top of my head, but it doesn't seem like it's that bad. And even if it's like hard for maybe. Uh, a high school student to get over it at first, it seems like a worthwhile thing 
to understand like given that uh, that I could do this then then it becomes more likely for this other thing to happen right I mean it's it's uh, you know my, my yeah my response to it is, is really yes it's, it's valuable there's a lot of things we teach that are unintuitive and it's kind of our uh, role as teachers to be able to get people over the unintuitive part and to apply it but also to recognize that there that if if it is unintuitive, then you're going to be making bad decisions because you're not going to be thinking through. And one of the classic examples that's given generally to med students is this is the result of a medical test. And so and this comes out, obviously, in, you know, now when they're doing tests for for Corona, like what the what is the uh, um, uh, you know, how good are the tests and so are false positives, false negatives and so on. Sure. And, and, and there's a classic example of, of like you have a rare disease, um, say, a, you know, it could be like a one in a million or something disease or 100,000, whatever happens to be. And, um, and a test that's like 99% accurate it, and you test positive, what's the probability that you have the disease? And, and a lot of people say, well, it's a 99% accurate test. I'm almost certainly likely to have this disease. And it turns out that your intuition fails, especially in the case of rare diseases, because the false positive rate ends up dwarfing the true positive rate. And that, and that comes out in an application of probability theory or Bayes rule, if you want to, to, to go there. Um, and you end up with actually a tiny chance of you actually having the disease, depending on how rare the disease is. Yeah, I, another one that's been circulating online uh, recently was like the the governor of New York put out this thing. He's, he's surprised that something like two thirds of people who are being diagnosed with COVID-19 were staying at home. Um, and so, uh, you know, but as someone pointed out, well, we have to look at, you know, what was the, uh, <laughs> you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're more likely to get it staying at home. I mean, we have to look at the percentage of people who are staying at home. Right, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think it also comes out in, um, you know, people, people saying like the number of people who test positive for this disease is, seems, you know, really, really high. And then when you look at the actual, um, uh, the way the test is, is, is done, sometimes it's picking up other, the exposure to other coronaviruses, like the common cold and or other Yeah, I, like, I was wondering that, like, is it like, yeah, there, there, could there be like a false positive on, on this test? Absolutely. And it's yeah, been shown so. that there, that does exist. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that, that is concerning. I asked about that online and uh, like, just a question, like, what's the false positive rate on this test? I think I, I think I said, I wasn't trying to be well, Twitter, everyone like assumes you're trying to, you have some kind of a, um, but I basically got responses saying like, no, there is no false positive. No, that's a, that's <laughs> well, I was just trying to figure out what was going on, which two months later, I still haven't figured it out. I want to tell you about a new sponsor uh, for the local maximum that I'm really excited about. I checked out some of their courses recently, and I think you should check it out too. It's called Brilliant, and it's not like most online courses or all the other online courses that you've taken. You're not going to have to sit through long videos and download PDFs and all that. This is a highly visual and interactive way to learn concepts in math, probability, science. I always say this, the most important part of learning a new concept is being able to get a good intuition for it, to understand what it means and what's going on. And, you know, I talked about the pitfalls of memorization recently. As you'll recall, if you use Brilliant, 
you'll understand. If you want to dive deeper and actively learn some of the concepts that I've introduced here in the Local Maximum, whether it's logic or probability, uh, and all the way, you could also learn something up, up to like group theory or quantum mechanics, which I haven't talked about as much on the show. I think we did have quantum mechanics once, but anyway, brilliant is a great way to go. You want to go to brilliant.org slash local maximum to check it out. The first 200 who do that will get 20% off. Uh, the first five, I'd be worried for you, but the first 200, I think you can get that. So go on brilliant.org slash local maximum. Grab that discount. Remember, it's called Brilliant. You can take the courses on their website at brilliant.org, but it's also an app as well, so you can get it on your phone or tablet. Uh, remember to sign up. Uh, go directly to brilliant.org slash local maximum to get the discount or find my link at localmaxradio.com slash 119. So, okay, the, the next one I want to dive into is subjective priors. We've talked about that a little bit. We've talked about that actually quite a bit on the show, but but there's definitely more to, to get there. So yeah. what is, yeah. okay, here's the Bayesian argument, uh, the, which is like, hey, we already know a lot about this problem, so why don't we use that? And then yes. take this data and then figure out where that leads us. But I guess right. the argument against that would be like, why not just let the data lead us wherever the data goes and, you know, don't bring your your prior uh, biases into that. So how would you respond to that? Well, okay. So so that's it is actually an interesting question uh, because because I think that that's at the heart of the kind of aversion to subjective priors, right? It's like, you know, oh, you're just injecting your opinion in this. And, and then when you look at it in detail, you find that the frequentist methods, they also have a subjective component to them that is worse in many ways because it's not explicit. It's, it's hidden in the procedure mm. itself and the way that you approach it. And one of the, uh, I, so, so, um, so I had to learn all these things kind of afterward, you know, after, you know, he, hearing people talk about statistical tests and, and so on. And, and so when I was looking into this, you know, so certain things kind of perplexed me as I was kind of learning. And, um, you know, so like, well, what does a p-value really mean? How do, you know, how these statistical tests actually work? Um, there was a paper, I think in 1976 by Lindley, um, where he looked at an example of flipping a thumbtack. And this is kind of a play on the standard problem about a biased coin like you know you you flip a coin you know 10 times and you get like seven you know heads and three tails is that good evidence that this yeah. is a biased coin? i don't understand the thumbtack like how do you okay so so there's a, so with a thumbtack the reason why he chose it is because there's not an inherent bi uh, uh symmetry to a thumbtack right so if you flip it it'll either have its point being down toward the table or it'll have its point up Oh, right, right, right. But yeah. you could totally imagine grabbing a random thumbtack and one of them might be a little longer, one of them might be a little shorter. It's hard to imagine that with a coin. Like, how do you bias a coin? It's, right, it's a lot right. harder, right? So the, I think it did it deliberately to kind of choose a system that um, didn't have an obvious symmetry. So, so you didn't already think it should be 50-50, like, and, and that it could really literally be almost anything. Um, and then he quoted data. So he said, you know, he, he had um, he has 12 data points where he flipped it and they were like, you know, up, 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 down, up, down, up, 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 down. Right. And that was right. his, his well. Right. And, and in that there were like three downs and nine ups. Right. And and he goes through the kind of frequentist approach about like, what does a p-value mean in terms of the probability of seeing more extreme data? So if you and what he showed was that if you think that the person was, was flipping 12 times, 
and you calculate out the p-value, you get something that is less than the 5%, all right? But if you, if you imagine that the person was flipping until they got um, three down, because it happened that the last one was a down, right? right. Uh, if you flip until you got three down, then, then you calculate a different p-value that's, that's above 5%, and so you wouldn't rule out uh, the, uh, the no. What's the hypothesis that they're, they're fair, testing? Of, of, of oh, fair. fair, fair. Yeah, fair yeah. so basically, okay. is this a fair attack, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and, and so depending on what you thought, what you imagined the experimenter was doing at the time, your result changed. That's weird. That's yes. Weird. And well, it's, it, it, well, it's yeah. because if you're, what you're doing, you're imagining a different population. Yeah. And, and, and that's all what frequentist effects do. They always imagine the, uh, some kind of sampling uh, uh, population that they're, they're comparing to. And, and so when I saw that, I was like, that's amazing. I mean, and, and it shouldn't, you know, that it shouldn't happen. Uh, and, then, and then what makes it worse is he said, you know, what really happened was not that I flipped until I got 12. And it wasn't that I flipped until I got three down, is I flipped until the coffee was done. Okay, what, what does that do? And so, which means, well, what, what it means is it, it means that, that the frequentist approach can't even use the data wow. because there's no population you could compare it to. It just obliterates the entire process. I've never heard of this th thumb tech yeah. uh, experiment, yeah. Uh, yeah. surprisingly, yeah. and I've yeah. looked yeah. into this stuff, so, so I'm so going to definitely read this. It's, it's one example of what's called the optional stopping problem, and it's a known problem in frequentist uh, approaches that, that doesn't infect the uh, uh, the Bayesian approaches. Yeah, I, if I were to approach this as a Bayesian, <laughs> that would not be a problem for It wouldn't me. be a problem, right, yeah, exactly. And, and this is another reason why, you know, why astronomers have come to this, because you know, they might plan to do one thing, but the weather has other ideas. And so then their final result is different. And, and depending on what population you imagine it came from, you might get a different result. Now, one, so, so, so when presented with this problem, I, I, so I asked statisticians, you know, what, frequent statisticians about what do you handle with this problem? You know, some responses were, yes, it should depend on what the experimenter was thinking at the time, which I find I, I can't believe. Uh, and, and the other problem is that it, they, they'd say something like, well, it's only 12 data points, so you really can't conclude anything, except for there's the fact staring at you that if you imagine a different population, you get a statistically significant p-value, which means by their procedure, you can, you should be able to say something. So, so that doesn't work. That doesn't work either. Um, but uh, so 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 that was one of those kind of turning point papers when I read that and I was like, this is um, kind of crazy in a way um, that this would happen on such a simple problem. Um, e. T. James likens it to he said he talks about the Galilean method for um, uh, for for problems like this. So you you take a you take a situation and you and you bring it down to the smallest problem that you can like you know really low number of, of data points so that way your intuition should tell you what's the right and wrong answer and so he did this for a number of different cases uh, um, and one of the one of my favorites there is the um the case with um he has a so et james has a paper i uh, i think 
uh, somewhere in the mid 70s in 72 maybe or 75 um, called confidence intervals versus Bayesian intervals and he goes through a number of simple examples but a few kind of jumped out at me one of them was a confidence interval calculation that you that you could show that the 90% confidence interval was wrong 100% of the time on this data set that you just look at it be like I'm yeah that's a flat out wrong yeah. it's just out it's out of the range that that you know it, it could be and that, that was uh, uh remarkable um, my, my experience is that if you report confidence intervals everybody thinks it's a Bayesian interval anyway Yes, yes, that's true. And and under a kind of certain symmetric cases, that's the, the, the case. Um, in, in, in the example he showed, it was um, a truncated exponential. So it was like a, it was a device that after a certain time would start failing. Before that time, it would have no failures. And then there's a critical point, And then it has like an exponential distribution of failures after that after that point. And you're trying to estimate the time point of the fa of when that kind of, you know, trigger for the failure starts to happen. Okay. But you can't but you can't observe that time directly. You, you only observe the subsequent failures. Okay, okay. I can see that problem. And, and so, you know, he, I think he had something like there was some like, you know, chemical or something that, that, that you know, slowly you know, worked its way out of the system. And once it was gone, the thing started failing, right? And you only saw the failures, but you wanted to know when did it, how long did the chemical last? And, uh, and then he had a, a three data point system, essentially, like the, the time of failures were like, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours kind of thing. Right, and and so you're immediate, you immediately know that that the that the failure had to have happened before 12 hours because that's the first data point, right? Uh, but okay, yeah, yeah, and and so the and, and he shows that 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 in this case the the 90% confidence interval is all like at, uh, past 12 hours. It's like 12.1 up to 13 or something like that. And you're like looking at the data and you're like, wait a minute, we know it can't be that. Um, and it turns out that there's this funny subset problem that happens that it's true that the long run relative frequency that would be that would happen but in certain weird subsets you know that the, you're uh, um, you know that that gets violated and it turns out that you can recognize those subsets from the data itself so he he kind of zooms in on the smallest possible problem to highlight it where your intuition says okay you know i know which method works and gives a reasonable result and you might not see that when on a bigger problem and so that's, you know, that was his kind of way of kind of showing, you know, uh, the differences between things. I'd like to uh, dive into that on my own time, maybe, because that sounds like a great example to, to repeat. Uh, I, I want to ask another question about subjective priors, because that's, um, you know, it, it's a benefit of Bayesian analysis, but there are also dangers. I mean, one of the things I point out, for example, is if I decide what the answer is going to be before the experiment and then run the experiment and give you my decided answer, that is valid in terms of Bayesian's <laughs> equations, you know? So where, if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to do Bayesian inference, uh, mm -hmm. I feel like there has to be a, a set of like, um, a set of guidelines on coming out with these priors. Are we, are we good at that at all? How do we, uh, how do we approach that? Well, it, it, well, it'll depend on the situation for sure. Um, there are some cases where we know at least the range of what the of what the value of a parameter should be. Um, we know, like for instance, if we're talking about uh, estimating a an infection rate, we know that has to be positive. 
for sure. We know it has to be bounded right. by some, you know, you know, physical and biological. So we have the so we have the space. A lot, a right. lot of times, I like to say, like the the space of hypotheses you're working at working in right. often tells you a lot about, you know, w what types of probability distributions you want to look at and right. all that stuff. Exactly. And then, and then you can, and then you, you know, you try to use as wide of a, uh, a, prob a prior probability distribution as you can get away with. That's still consistent with your knowledge. Um, in some cases, you can you can make that formal, like uh, um, you know, what are called maximum entropy priors, uh, where you're given some information and you can and you can show empirically, you know, objectively what the prior should be for your parameter, given you know what you know about it already. Um, but in other cases, it's somewhat, you know, it's somewhat subjective. But but even your choice of model, like the you know, kind of subjective choices, come into play at every stage of the analysis. It's not just at the prior, right? So so it's also in the likelihood, right? It's also in the uh, the models that you're choosing. And so uh, just because you you know say, you say oh we're going to start with an objective prior, that that might not actually mean. You know a whole lot if the all the subject lots of subjectivity in the in the likelihood and and everyone has this problem this is not uh unique to bayesian uh approaches this is true in frequently sure. I mean, you have to have some kind of model of the system sure uh so it's you pointed out that you found this stuff through your work in in physics primarily without i'm sure you took uh statistical you know, you, you learn statistical inference through physics. Like I learned yeah. it through machine learning and not through mm -hmm. a formal stats course, which right. I've, I never took an actual stats course, only intro to machine learning, intro to natural right. language processing, right, all right, that right. stuff. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> data mining. So, um, uh, so was that what enabled you to stumble upon this realization? Uh, what do you think would have happened if you, if you took, uh, the stats course? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question whether I would be frequentist today or not. You know, if I if I taken a stats course earlier on, um, you know, I started off with my actually with my um, my, in my with my PhD. I have a PhD in physics, but my uh, dissertation was in computational uh, neuroscience. So I was overlapping a lot. I was going to a lot of talks in biology, and and so they would put up these these uh, plots with uh, you know histograms, and they put little stars over some of them to say they're significant. And I was always like, hmm, I, I kind of know, I kind of vaguely know what they mean, but I didn't know kind of quantitatively. So I I spent a summer just kind of you know going through it, and that's why I bumped into all these different issues. Um, and then I found that most of these techniques seem to be mathematically equivalent to the Bayesian techniques if you assume no other information, essentially uniform priors. Um, you, you can essentially derive all these kind of statistical tests, um, which is, you know, when I wrote the book uh, Statistical Inference for Everyone, I kind of, that was the approach that I did, uh, mostly because I was trying to convince frequentists. So I, I didn't want to do kind of a, a full out, you know, Bayesian in your face kind of presentation, I wanted to show how it was accessible, how we could deal with a lot of the same problems that you are already dealing with in stats, stats one class, um, but that you didn't have to um, you know, have a kind of a frequentist approach. And that was kind of my proof of concept. Yeah, I think a lot of people who take these stats classes like just say, okay, this is the method and I learned it and I can just go with it. But I think once you start asking too many questions, <laughs> you start thinking a little differently. Well, one of the funny things I think is, you know, that, you know so I had said that um, 
one of the objections was unintuitive uh, conditional probabilities. And, and, you know, after kind of the, the serious uh, response of saying like, you know, this is important to learn and so on, I have my kind of snarky response, which, it, which is, well, you know, ask your students to define what a p-value is and then tell me whether that's intuitive or not. Um, <laughs> because most, most you know, students will, will say it's the probability of the null, which, you know, all those statisticians are like, no, no, it's not. And, you know, because the students are thinking mostly in a kind of a Bayesian way, I think, um, whether they realize it or not. And then the, the p-value is, um, is not that. And, and so it, and it's pretty unintuitive. And I even have to look up, we look up the, the definition from time to time because right. it's that unintuitive. Right, right, right. Okay, so I wish the world was Bayesian. It isn't. <laughs> um, and so some, I feel like there are you know, there are a lot of people who are not Bayesian, they do great work. And sometimes I find I have to read papers or results where I kind of like, I cringe at the terminology, but I don't want to dismiss right. it. Um, right. So for me, there's kind of a code switching that goes on. Uh, how, how do you <laughs> how do you handle this? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, so when they start, when they talk about p values i just imagine okay they're assuming a certain uh, probability distribution and they're looking at tail you know areas it's like a bayesian you know with i usually think of it as kind of just you know a bayesian with very few assumptions like that's a, and and no kind of you know models behind it um, and and so that's um, or or i think of it as like okay if if all you have access to is counting then that's what you get, and and it's about right. the it's about the same. So I often think of frequentist methods as basically being a super, uh, being a subset of the of the uh, of the Bayesian approaches in that in that way. Um, and it's true that many of them are easier computationally to do. I mean, if you're going to do a full Bayesian analysis, sometimes the computation takes a long time. If you're doing like an MCMC and, and so sure. on, and, and there may not be that much benefit to doing that on some simple systems. If you have a hierarchical right. system, you know, Bayesian all the way. But if you have just a kind of you're just doing essentially a, a linear regression, essentially, you may as well just use the the solutions yeah. already been found. Except like when I'm working in uh, Foursquare's code base, when there's like MCMC libraries built in, I'm like, yeah, go for it. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If they have if they have it. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it sometimes does take a long time. It depends on, again, it depends on what the problem is. But I found if it's like a one-dimensional easy problem, the MCMC stuff is also easy, so. Yeah, that's that's true. And sometimes even yeah. just brute force is easy in that case. Like, right. you, you know, if it's a one, if in a 1D problem, it's actually easy. It's just to run out the parameter in that one dimension and then you're, and then you're done. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's pretty simple, straightforward. Yeah. The one thing that makes me nervous, like I've, so I have not really read any, you know, medical uh, papers or, or studies, very few before this whole pandemic situation. And now I've, you know, been curious enough to look at a few of them. And it just, it makes me nervous when they have these small sample sizes and they're talking about p-values. And I'm just like, right. no, I, I kind of want to see, right. you know, I kind of want to see prior and posterior here. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, that, and 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 I think you're right to be nervous in those in those cases. Um, 
I mean, I, I'm, and that's not I, to say the studies yeah. are wrong. Like I've no, seen course. some, I, right. you know, well, there, there are a few that I saw. Well, there's one in particular I'm thinking that, that I read before this pandemic where I was like, that's too small of a, of a, of a data size. But then I realized that the effect was pretty large and then it turned out that, uh, that it, it was correct. So uh, yeah, effect yeah. size is actually more important. I find than P values, honestly. Mm. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it's funny because I thought when this whole uh, pandemic was going down that I'd be reading a lot of the papers and diving into the data and things like that because it's kind of my wheelhouse for, for that. But I found at least psychologically, I just didn't feel like being in uh, COVID-19 24-7 in terms of my thinking. Oh, totally and so I haven't, understand. <laughs> so, and so I've been like, you know, okay, I'll, I'll look at things here and there if there's something I want to lo look at, but it's for the most part, and there's that. And the other thing is the lack of testing and has pretty much led to data just being pretty unreliable for the most part. And that's much harder to deal with. And I think it, one has to be very careful about about how you craft your models in the case where you can't trust the data set that you Yeah. Handed. Well, if, if you don't want to talk about COVID-19, let's talk about marketing for a second. Because I was <laughs> in... Uh, so I, I worked on 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 the on an attribution product for two and a half years, which is trying to tell companies, you know, whether their ads were actually driving people into stores. Right. And so we were we moved from a, a, basically a frequentist model to a Bayesian model. It seemed like sales and maybe the industry was more frequentist. And so what they were doing was it was like, give me a p value on whether the there was an effect and then give me a point estimate of the effect. And uh -huh. I, it just, it was not workable <laughs> if we wanted to give them reasonable information once we had like prior and posterior, okay, like as we get more data about your ad campaign, we're more and more certain about what the effect was. And you right. could like see like, you know, here's the probability that it actually was zero and, and so on right. and so forth. And and again, like a big effect is a lot easier to to detect than a small effect. That's sure. another thing I had to like tell people over and over again, um, where it's like, they're like, how long until we know whether the ad worked? And I'm like, well, it depends. Did the ad work really well or did it well work <laughs> kind of well, you know? Right. And yeah. so, uh, but one of the frustrating things about that is, yeah, like the, um, I, I almost had to believe, you know, which is why after three years it was like, okay, that's enough time working on this. But it, it was, I almost had to believe that the guy writing the check for these ads or a guy or gal and their analysts, they care about, you know, all this data. But the problem is the people it goes through, whether it's uh, like the, the company's sales teams and the, the, uh, the um, you know, the ad agencies and all that, they sort of don't want to pass along all of that statistical knowledge. And so it was, it was kind of a, a game of telephone that get very frustrating. Right. Well, I mean, I guess there's, one has to be able to communicate the end result of any statistical analysis sure. in a way that people can understand it. Um, and I mean, it helps if they have some basic knowledge of it, right? That right. That's always helpful in terms of kind of education. Um, you could essentially, you know, call it a p-value, even though it's not really in terms of, if you just look at, you know, posterior yeah. areas and well, stuff like that. When we but, were on p-values, they were uh, they were totally um, interpreting them as Bayesian confidence intervals. Uh, okay. But also, but what we ended up doing was we took our problem, like we had a 
sophisticated MCMC Bayesian model in the background, but in the end, we just took our probability distribution and we gave them median 5%, yeah. 95%. Yeah. Yeah. There's your range. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that's credible. And it worked reasonable enough. Yeah. Right. Right. And the median is definitely, you know, definitely better yeah. to, to use for that. Yeah. Although, yeah, but I still think like if they, like they could have made better decisions if they want to know, if they wanted to dive into, you know, how, how the distribution works a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the nice things actually about the Bayesian approach is that, is that the posterior includes all that information if you want to dig it out. Right. Right. You know, you don't just have to go with the median. You can go with something else. You know, you can you can look at, you know, various areas. You can do other other things, especially if there's like multiple variables. You know, yeah. Then, then you really have a way to kind of explore it, um, and and that gets around like the uh, um, kind of multiple comparison uh, problem. That's a a real problem with frequentist methods, and there are you know various techniques to deal to deal with that. The Bayesian you know hierarchical methods seem to deal with that without any issues. Right. I mean, that's, that's another thing. This, this model was like, you're, you're trying to look for a number, a positive number, essentially. Uh, but some spaces are much more complicated. Like right. if you're code breaking, like Turing, it's, uh, <laughs> it's still, it's a, it's, well, it's, it's a finite space, but it's way more complicated <laughs> than, than right. uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, there could be so many different configurations and each of them are connected to other configurations right. in kind of a, a Rubik's cube type fashion. <laughs> and so, you, you know, there's a lot more sometimes searching this that makes searching the space much harder. Mm. That's, that's where the problem is there. I think. True. True. You know, my focus has been a lot in being in academia is a lot trying to see, are there good ways of teaching this to people? So that way, when they do work for companies and where that they're able to be receptive to this vocabulary. And, uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I wrote that, wrote that book um, was so that to kind of show as kind of proof of concept, this is how you would approach an intro class with uh, from a Bayesian point of view. Yeah. And you said that like people associate Bayesian uh, inference with advanced math. And is yes. that really like, it's actually, I find that sometimes even going through a very simple Bayesian example could get, it's not advanced math, but it kind of could hurt your brain a little bit, even like the, <laughs> even the medical example. It's, it's right. strange how it seems it's simple numbers and yet it doesn't, um, uh, you have to be organized in order to get it to really. Right, work. right. That's, that, that's true. It is a little bit, you have to be a little bit detail oriented, but I think what, you know, what, my, my impression is that the, that the uh, people are saying that it involves advanced math. Are, are saying so because the first time they ever saw Bayesian analysis was in graduate school when they saw it all like with all the extra proofs and, 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 and connections to limit theorems and everything else. Measure theory. Yeah, exactly. I, I love measure theory, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, you, not, know, you might not want to start with that. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so they, in their head, they associate the kind of Bayesian approaches with these kind of more advanced things, not recognizing that their frequentist classes, classes in graduate school also had all of that, which of course they're not covering in their undergraduate classes. And they don't recognize that kind of disconnect. They never saw it at the undergraduate level. I mean, I went, I went through like to try to see like what textbooks cover intro stats from a Bayesian point of view. And I found two, um, 
and only two in all the books I, I, I looked at. So mine would be number three. Uh, one, of them, one of them is uh, the Think Bays series by uh, uh, Alan Downey. He's at Owen College, and that's a, an engineering school. So that one's a, uh, very accessible, but more in terms of programming. So they actually uh, uh, ties it with computation really right from the beginning, and that's kind of part of their, in terms of their curriculum. The other one is, is one uh, by uh, Barry, Donald Barry, I think is uh, his name, and called something like the Bayesian Perspective or something. And that's from 1995, and you really can't get it anymore. Uh, even on the on the book, mm. it says it comes with a floppy disk. So, um, <laughs> is your when did you find a floppy disk? <laughs> you know, you can still get on Amazon a floppy disk thing that connects with a USB into your. Uh, that's astounding. <laughs> well, I know. Well, I've been transferring mini DVs all, all last weekend, so I, oh, I've yeah. been looking into all this stuff, and I may, might even need to transfer a few VHSs. It's a good uh, quarantine project if anyone's looking for one. Um, do you have Do you have the uh, uh, the um, the hardware to do it? Do yes. like you have a VHS player that you can that you can use to, to yeah. do the transfer? Yeah. Uh, although I so I was using a mini DV uh, camera, which I right. think you actually need the camera because there's no deck to plug it in. Uh, right. So that was that was pretty straightforward. But I tried plugging the v, the VCR into the mini DV camera into the computer, and something got it, it got all like <laughs> messed up in the way. So today I got a cable in the in the mail from Amazon that will hook up my VH my uh, my VCR directly into my iMac so we'll see how that goes uh, <laughs> it's one of the, that's one of the but, troubles with technology is you do yeah. have to kind of keep migrating it each yeah. every so often or you just lose it even then, some file formats that were well, like uploaded right. previously no longer work which is which is um, yeah which that's is why crazy. I t typically try to use uh, text formats as much as I can yeah, yeah, but with video, I don't know. I mean, they can't do video. Yeah. .mov, hopefully that'll be good for a while. I yeah. feel like the things now will last longer than maybe things 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Um, <laughs> all right, so I, well, so wait, your book uh, is, um, is that available hardcover on, or, or, or online only, or is it hardcover as well? So, um, so you can, I did it through CreateSpace, which I think moved to Kindle Publishing now, Kindle Direct. So you can either download a, like a PDF from my website, yeah. or you can go to Amazon and order a, a paperback version cool. of it. So you can get PDF, a that's another yeah. format that is not going to go out of fashion uh, anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So, uh, cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to link to that localmaxradio.com slash 119. We're going to have a lot of links today. I could already tell. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's end, you know, w when people think of statistics or data science or probability, I think the public usually doesn't associate the word imagination and you've used that term. So that interests me. Um, as as like an important ingredient to the work that we do. So so why is that? Tell me a little bit more. Yeah. So um, so I did, gave a, a TEDx talk a, a couple of years ago uh, about this and, and talking about how your lack of imagination can kill you and um, but that you know but you can be saved by math um, and and the idea is that that you know probability theory or Bayes theorem is. Uh, more than just uh, mathematics, that it really is a way to structure your, your, your thinking. And one way to phrase it is to say that, the, that your beliefs in any claim at all should scale with 
how likely that um, 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 claim is before you see any data, how well your particular model might you know, fit that, your explanation, how well that, that explains the data. But it also should be scaled down by the number of plausible ways that that same data can be explained in other ways. And that's where a lot of imagination comes into play is kind of imagining alternatives uh, to yeah, your people- observation. People don't like to do that when they've already made up their mind. That's true. And, and I think this is one of those kind of cognitive biases, right? You know, kind of the confirmation bias where you look for things to confirm what you already already believe and you tend to ignore the, the others. And, or, or even if you don't ignore the others, you don't actively look for alternatives. And this is, I think, probably- Once you from, think you've found the answer. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think my, my training as a scientist is, is what's kicking in here where the scientific methods- really encourage the the idea of you know don't trust your initial thought think of many ways that this could come out and and try to find ways to rule those rule those out and um and so i and i give a, a few examples in 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 the talk one one of my uh, favorite examples though uh mostly because it is utterly trivial, but it's, the, it's, it's this kind of like once you try to practice this thinking um so i was with a student um, working on a project and I looked up um, and there was a clock on the wall that was broken in some way like the the second hand was kind of ticking erratically and I just and, and, the, and the time wasn't really correct and and so I looked at it it's like oh yeah that clock's like totally broken and the student was like no I think it's actually clicking out the right amount of time it's just doing it inconsistently so it's you know it's it's clicking a second and then waiting for three but then jumping three seconds and waiting for two and then jumping two but like on average kind of essentially and I looked at it like no, I don't think so. So we had like kind of two claims. We had the observation. And so I, you know, put a dollar down and I said, I think I'm right. And, and, and we both pulled out our smartphones and sat there timing this broken clock for a couple of minutes. And it turned out I was wrong. It was actually clicking out the right amount of time. But I, but I uh, was glad to be wrong and to lose that, lose that dollar because it meant that I, you know, uh, got to practice, you know, this way of thinking, but also that I knew one more true thing in the universe and one fewer false thing. And I think, and, and I was willing to have my belief challenged on the spot and, and be shown that I was wrong, like right then and there, even on something trivial. Uh, and I think that kind of attitude is important. And it's encapsulated, that part of it is actually encapsulated in the denominator of a base theorem. It's essentially a sum of all the different ways you could explain the same thing. And, yeah. and that's where, you know, so I see it kind of in a larger philosophical sense, more than just the mathematics. That's a great story. You know, one thing I find when I'm struggling with a problem and for some reason, you know, I've, I'm, I'm struggling with it in my head. So I'm not going through Bayes rule and all that um, formally, but then eventually if the problem gets so intractable, I'm like, all right, you know what, Max, you got to sit down. You know how to do this. You, you know how to use Bayes rule. <laughs> And so I say, all right, what's the first step? Well, the first step is lay out all the hypotheses that you could think of. I guess in the scientific method that that I learned in school, it was come up with a hypothesis. But now I'm like, no, 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 no. Come up with lots of hypotheses. I find that once I go through that that particular exercise of laying out all the hypotheses, 
I find like I almost don't have to go through the rest mm. of the, the actual math. Like right. that, that I, the, the, the answer almost falls out from that, <laughs> right. Right. you know, surprisingly, a surprising number of times. <laughs> and, and it also helps, I mean, to, to bounce your ideas off to someone else and they can think of other things. Right. So you're using their imagination as well. And, and you're right. I mean, I think people's views, people, yes. And people, people use a, a probability theory or Bayes theorem informally all the time. I mean, we're constantly evaluating claims, situations, uh, inferring about our environments and so on. We just don't recognize that we're doing it. And it's only in sure. those cases where, where I think our kind of intuition fails or this problem becomes too complex that we really do have to be a little bit more systematic about it. But we do it. We use it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel like, I mean, some people, a lot of people are rationally fearful now of a lot of stuff, but I almost think like fear is a evolutionary thing to make sure that we get the important hypotheses in there uh, right. in the short term so that yeah. we know if, if there is danger, yeah. then, uh, then we've considered it. Yes. Um, all right. So on that note, the book is called Statistical Inference for Everyone. Maybe you could tell us a little bit like wh where we can get the book and also where else we can find you online. So the easiest place to find me online is uh, at bblaze.github.io. And you can get uh, copies of the book there. You can, my blog is there and I, you know, I posted, I need to post a little bit more, be a little bit more active, but, uh, but I, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, okay. It's kind of my playground for, for, for uh, working out. Well, well post ideas, about the so. local maximum. I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, great. I'll link to all that localmaxradio.com slash 119. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, any last thoughts on our discussion today? No, it's been fun. Thank you so much for, for having me on here. Thanks for coming on. And right. uh, yeah, look forward to getting this out. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Definitely check out Brian's book, Statistical Inference for Everyone, at our show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 119, and also our sponsor, Brilliant. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. 